One, two, one, two. Am I no? No on? Is it on? Cool. For when people start falling asleep. <laughs> Morning, Glenridge. Morning, everyone. I am convicted he is alive. Makes all the difference. He is risen. He went before us to make a way. He is alive. And that should change everything, Glenridge. Everything. The way we respond, what we do, how we do it, everything. Um, so we are still in the book of First Thessalonians. Um, and it's only 10 chapters. I've challenged my children. Come on. Sorry, not 10 chapters. 10 verses, First Thessalonians. By the end of the holidays, you should be able to have memorized First Thessalonians. Only 10 verses. I'm not sure how far they've got. We will see. Um, that's also to say you're given 10 verses to preach out of. Stan needs to relook at that. I mean, it took me less than five minutes to read the whole chapter. But we're going to start off with the fact that words are important. Sharon asked me what I'm preaching about this morning. I said it's loaded. Words are loaded. And I'll make an example. I'll give you a very loaded word before we get to our word of the day. If I say dog, in this room there's a very, already many responses. My nine-year-old daughter might think of a little puppy or a Yorkie, cute and cuddly. A person of the law might think of his very obedient German shepherd that can do what he says when he says. Aunt German Shepherd, if you were raised in the township during the times of apartheid, you think German Shepherd, you think run. <laughs> Likewise, the same word, dog, to someone who's recently been robbed is that guy wearing a balaclava who's jumping his fence. And his children might have heard them say, catch that dog. And it didn't mean a four-legged creature but that person jumping the fence wearing a balaclava. The last, there's probably many others, but lastly, if there are ladies here who've been heartbroken, you might immediately think of the Tinder swindler. Dog. So likewise, as we talk about the irresistible church um, of First Thessalonians, when they heard the word gospel, which is not what they would have heard, but for our intents and purposes, that's how it's translated in our Bibles. When they heard the word gospel, it would have been loaded with the way that word makes them feel, the way they respond to that word. Because how the word makes you feel and what your understanding of the word is, it agitates a certain response out of you. So we're going to do, we're going to have a look at this word. And Hilton Mandel did so brilliantly last week to explain what the gospel is. Today, largely, we'll be looking at how possibly the church, well, not possibly, it's in First Thessalonians, how the church in Thessalonica responded 
to that word gospel and how Paul used that word gospel um, and how we should in turn um, feel when we hear the word because that's what the people of that time would have felt. What response is it invoking in us when we hear that word? So the word um, that translated into gospel was euangelion. I am no Greek, so hopefully I am pronouncing that correctly. Um, That is the word which ultimately in the English is translated gospel um, from Godspell, which means um, we largely know today as good news. When you have gospel, we think good news. It is that and a whole lot more. Um, the word euangelion later then became evangelion, um, and it will be clear why now that is the word we get evangelism from. In Zulu, it is plainly evangeli, close to that translation, evangelion. But this word was used in a time of an inner world when Paul writes this letter. And what's fascinating is Paul, when you read in the text, I'll start by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Sorry, why am I keep saying chapters? 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 and 5. Hopefully you're already there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, our gospel, lost my place, came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. But I want to stop at our gospel. The fact that, and Paul uses many, if you read through Paul's letters, he'll use our gospel, he'll use my gospel, and he'll use the gospel of, and continue to describe what the gospel is of, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of grace. And for me, that sticks out as peculiar as why do you need to, it's almost as if he sets gospel apart. It says our gospel, which makes me think there was a different kind of gospel. There was a different kind of euangelion that maybe the churches is writing to were familiar with. And the truth is there was. Okay, this is the moment in the story where we do a flashback. Every good story needs a flashback for about one episode or so. But it only gives further strength to an understanding as to why what's about to come comes in the way that it does. Um, So as I've hinted at earlier, the Thessalonians that Paul is writing to at this time are in what was known as the Roman world at the time. Roman Empire, the time of the Caesars, um, they're running the show I'm not sure how far the Roman Empire had spread, but that was the influence at the time. Now, I'm sorry for the non-history buffs among us, but a bit of a history lesson. Julius Caesar, I'm sure we've all heard the name, Julius Caesar, the month of July, named after him, if you're not sure. He was um, an emperor, 
in the time of Rome, said to be the first emperor, assassinated. Um, as the next Caesar, who takes over, if my history is correct, is Augustus, July, August, um, is running the show. As Augustus is running the show, there's a peculiar thing that happens at the time. They see a star or like a comet shooting across the sky, and apparently this is visible for a good number of days for everyone to see for a while. Augustus then came and claimed that that comet that you saw is, is actually Julius Caesar, who had passed away not so long ago, who has now been deified. He is now amongst the gods. And that's the sign that you saw. So Julius Caesar is in fact a god. He's amongst the gods who rules. And if you know the, um, what you might call it, the history or the mythology of the Roman gods and the Greek gods, there's a few of them. And Julius Caesar had, that was a sign that Julius Caesar had become one of them. And it's actually called the Julian Comet. Um, so he then claimed that if Julius Caesar has gone to be amongst the God, me being Julius Caesar's son, however adopted, I am therefore the son of God. And therefore, what the Roman Empire would do is then, they would have people who, as the Roman Empire spread, would be, call them heralds, runners, who would come to that new territory, come to that new area, and be the bearer of the euangelion, the gospel, the good news that the Roman Empire has spread this far. I, Augustus Caesar, am the son of God, or whoever is in that area at the time, you know, this is the story, this is who you are, this is who is running the show now. It is us. Um, so they'd have these heralds, they'd have coins made. You remember the story when Jesus, when Peter asked you to pay our taxes, and he says, whose face is on the coin? Whose face was on the coin? It was Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs unto Caesar. They had coins with inscription that that spread across the Roman Empire to spread this news of this is the Roman Empire. Julius, God, son of God. And the coins were actually inscribed. Um, some of them, Julius is God. Some of them, you know, Augustus, the son of God, they were inscribed. So there was a message they were sending out, and that was their gospel. That was the euangelion of the gods. And there was a thing um, amongst the Romans at the time that, um, you know, there were certain acts, heroic acts, that all these people did to be considered worthy to be among the, among the gods. They conquered, they took out their adversaries in battles. This was legal, this was um, military. Um, they assert their authority, they take ground, and they were seen as heroes. So there was a particular strand of gospel that was out there. Um, which the Thessalonian church would have been very well aware of. 
So when Paul comes in and speaks to them those three Saturdays or Sabbaths and writes them letters, he finds it important enough to say our gospel. But bear in mind that these people of Thessalonica are very familiar that the gospel is not something you just keep to yourself. When there is the gospel, what have the Romans been doing ever since? They send it out. They take territories. They tell everyone they know in any way they know. Make coins, write letters. When a new emperor is born, heralds run again. They need to tell everyone that there is a new son that's been born who will one day be emperor. Um, so Paul comes in and says, my gospel. But Paul is very clear because he does set it apart from the gospel of the day. Um, because there is a gospel of the day. He sets it apart and says, my gospel. But he tells the story of Jesus, once again, which last week's priest did so beautifully. You can get it on podcasts. There's many ways to catch up. But he tells the story of a king who actually was a god, who dies not for his sake, but for the sake of others, who hands himself over to his adversaries and authorities, not in a conquering way. He doesn't come with military power. He doesn't come with all the strength in the world. He does not come with armies. But yet this king, who tells the story of a king who sacrifices himself for everyone else, not everyone else in military battle sacrificing themselves for him, And yet this king is witnessed dying, witnessed actually, not just dead and a comet is seen in the star and it's speculative. He died, he rises amongst witnesses and goes to be seated in heaven on the right hand of God. That's part of the gospel that Paul tells to the people of Thessalonica, which is in stark contrast to what the gospel is to what they have learned and have seen around them as a gospel of the day. So immediately, I think to the church of Thessalonica, it becomes very clear that with this good news, with what we have heard, how we have actually been brought into a kingdom that we were never part of, there's a response that is required. And what is the response? The word gospel is already used, and I think it's used deliberately by Paul to invoke a certain feeling amongst them, to invoke a certain response among them. So 1 Thessalonians, still, chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 8 and 9. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, the ki- concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But verse 8 just says it there that the gospel sounded from among them. Soon as they heard the word gospel used, they knew exactly what was to be done. Now, when I hear the word sounded, I immediately think of 
a fat Japanese man about to hit a gong. Because that sound just goes on and on and on. We don't quite have a gong at church, but we've got one of these. Similar enough. And for a second, just listen to the sound of this thing as it goes out. Now, I also want to contrast this to 1 Corinthians 13, which says, without love, we are, about clang we are just clanging cymbals. You're making a noise. This gospel that Paul came with was a gospel of love. And when you have the gospel of love, you're not just a clanging cymbal, but you're a beautiful sound that rings out that people come back and give good feedback and reports about. But anyways. And I'm hoping every time you see one of these or a gong, you remember the gospel. But one of the things about this a gong, when it goes... Initially, it's loud. It's in your face. It may be a bit irritating even. But over time, the volume drops. And it comes to sort of a sweet spot where it's a lovely sound. Actually, you're enjoying it. But it continues to fade even more. Eventually, you're asking yourself and wondering, is it actually still ringing or isn't it? Am I just imagining the sound or maybe there is something there? It's near inaudible or actually inaudible. You can't tell where the exact break is that this thing has actually stopped ringing out. And somewhat the gospel is like that. Initially when we receive it, it challenges us, which is okay. It's supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to teach us different to what we've been taught in the world. Like Paul came with our gospel. It's supposed to sit us up and make us think and irritate us. That's okay. But eventually the gospel must work itself into your heart, it must soften your heart, that it finds that sweet spot where you're actually enjoying the sound of the thing. And eventually the gospel that we give out must always be sounding out in people's ears. Whether you are still there, whether you're with them or you're not there, the gospel should have an influence that without anyone watching over you, without anyone preaching at you, without anyone constantly behind you, that the gospel is just always ringing in your ears and you're thinking of this good news and you're thinking of it. So the gospel sounded out. And in response, there's a few things we need to do when the gospel sounds out. One is we need to live it. It's actually still vibrating a little bit. <laughs> One is we need to live this gospel. If this gospel comes in power and with deep conviction, we need to live it. It starts with how we live. Yes, it comes with words, which are necessary, which are important. That's how we receive it. Um, but the outworking of that is we need to live it. So just once upon a time, before I got married, I had a girlfriend, which wasn't my wife. So all the young adults, yeah, pointy ears, listen carefully. Um, 
this was my university days. Um, unbeknown to me, that particular lady was rather well-known. She had a group of friends. And I only, figure, I only hear the story years later. I'm working, one of the colleagues I'm working with was friends with this lady. And she comes to me and she says, sorry, I'll be very candid here. Hey, that lady wanted you, eh? I don't know how you dodged that bullet. But actually, actually, I know now actually that I don't just hear what you're saying. I know you're a believer. I'm convinced you are. Because she always told me how it never happened. It never went there, you know? And part of sharing the gospel is how we live it out, is how we conduct our lives that preaches and convinces people that actually this thing is real, that actually Jesus is alive, that actually it transforms is what it comes to do. Aside of the culture of the day. The other thing is also Jesus sets a standard. And other than Jesus setting a standard, he comes to give a sacrifice. Because I know sometimes what tends to happen is people think, I'm a good person, never hurt anyone. Morally, I meet the standard. But it's not just a moral standard that Jesus is setting. Because Jesus is actually inviting us into kingdom. He's inviting us into family. And until you say yes to Jesus, invitation, in, until you say yes to Jesus' sacrifice, until you say yes to this kingdom, actually your morals are not worth a lot. Um, they don't mean too much. You have not said yes to the King of Kings who is bringing you into relationship with a creator, with a God, with a Father who is all-powerful and all-knowing. So verse 7, Thessalonians. Talks about, and I'm not going to read it, maybe I should. So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Is we need to stand as an example. An example is not what you say. An example is brought about what you do. In verse 9, it also goes to talk about them, and we read it earlier, turning away from idols, turning away from what they believe. And I believe it's a bit more than just looking at physical idols that you worship, a statue or whatever. But it's turning away from, there are things that can be idols in our life. As an African person, there are cultures and beliefs and traditions which we hold up. Some of them can be idols because there's a juncture where, and this is for everyone, not just African people, but I'm talking with an example of African people because it's what I know. There, there comes a juncture where what your culture practices and believes and does is in opposition or does not agree with what the Bible would say, not agree with what, how you respond in certain situations. 
And if you continue to hold your culture, whatever that may be, as higher than what God's instruction would be, that thing becomes an idol. It doesn't have to be a statue you worship. It becomes an idol because you are then exalting that higher than God. You are putting it before God, and therefore that's the idol. That's what you actually worship, and that's what you actually um, believe, other than what you might confess with your mouth. In Genesis, it says a man, it says a man and a woman will leave their parents and cleave to each other. I believe that is more than just a physical leaving behind your mother and father. But it's a reconsideration of your ways, of your traditions, of your practices, of your cultures, and saying there is a juncture where when I meet God, because the New Testament, in fact, even in the Old, it likens our relationship with God to a marriage. And when you come into this kingdom, it is like a marriage. And when you come in, you need to decide, what am I leaving behind? What can I continue with? Anything that does not agree with what God has instructed, I need to leave behind. So it might mean leaving some of your mother's and father's ways, some of your traditions, some of your cultures, whatever they may look like. And I say some specifically because some do not exalt themselves above the will of God, and that's okay. But when they do, you need to reassess. The second one is the culture of the day. There is a culture of the day. It's either you are flowing in that culture unaware, and you think, ah, there isn't really, or you're very aware of the culture of the day and what the culture of the day poses and challenges and raises itself up against what God would say, rather. One of those cultures of the day is to mention maybe two, which are in the limelight quite often. One is self-identification. God created you, formed you fearfully and wonderfully is what the Bible would say. But the culture of the day says you can self-identify however you may feel, however you may want to, whenever you may want to. In fact, it can change whenever you want it to change. Yet God says in the book of Jeremiah, I knew you and I called you before you were formed in your mother's womb, he says to Jeremiah, to be a prophet among the nations. Now what the culture of self-identification does and says at heart, partly, is that you can be whatever you want to be, whenever you want to be. In other words, you don't have to be what I predestined you to be. You don't have to live out the core that I predestined you to have. And that raises itself up against what God has said, if you look at Jeremiah, to be called as a prophet among the nations before he was born. If he can self-identify, you can say, cheers to that. I don't identify as a prophet. I identify as whatever else. The other one is um, because it's raised its ugly head recently in France with all the riots and, 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 
and this is not a matter of which side is wrong, which side is right. There are race relations, culture of the day. They have a thing to say, everyone has a word to say, from the side of the victim, whoever the victim may be, to the side of the perpetrator, whoever the perpetrator may be, because that changes depending on which side of the argument <laughs> you are listening to. Um, but I think it's one thing in particular for the church where we need to stand up and say, there's neither Greek nor Jew. As the church, we need to make the example. We need to lead the way. That has to be our response. There's either slave, neither slave nor free. God has called us into one kingdom as one family. In fact, the Thessalonians would have understood this very well because... Augustus Caesar was an adopted son of Julius Caesar, not his natural son, but he took his place as the next Caesar, as the next ruler of Rome. And if I'm not correct, even the one after that, Augustus Caesar's son was not a natural son of, um, of his, but an adopted son. And, 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 and it's just one of those examples where even us in the church, we should be even making a greater example. We should be leading the way in this, we should be showing the world what healthy, cross-cultural, cross-racial relations look like. The other thing we need to do is we need to share it. We need to share the gospel. Words are necessary. They didn't just come in words, as chapter 5 will say but with power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Words are necessary. But the other important thing about sharing the gospel with words is the timing of when those words are used is also important. So it's not about going out and Bible bashing everyone. Thus says the Lord, you shall hear it, like it or not, <laughs> even in the middle of the night. But, you know... Um, Yeah, another quick story is I have another colleague I used to work with and he was going through his own things. In fact, at the time he came in as a student and I was already in the company. So he said, hey, this little, this chap here is under your care. And unlike Paul's story, we actually used to do some work. We didn't just carry around a file and play Tetris or solitaire on the computer. We used to do some work. But you know, he'd often be questioning and wanting to find things out and in the appropriate time, in the appropriate manner, with the way I live my life, with what I share to him, he was convicted and he gave his life, you know? Um, not necessarily that I led him to the Lord, but he came back and told me that, you know, this has happened, this is where I am, you know? And we still share that faith, you know, um, when we see each other. So share it is important. What I want to close off with is spread it. One of the things that the irresistible church of Thessalonica knew when they heard the word euangelion, evangelion, gospel, is this has to be shared. We've seen the coins. We've seen the heralds run. We've seen people 
who used this word euangelion and what it invoked in them was this thing is spread. Hence, the gospel from them rang out through Macedonia, through Archaea. They knew they had to live it, hence they became imitators and there was good reports of how they, what they did amongst other people. You spread it, a stone's throw away to your colleagues, to your neighbors, to your fellow students, to whoever's around you. A drive away, the omission trips we do, Mozambique, Eswatin, wherever it may be, Lesotho, the next province, there are trips designed for us to spread the gospel and to share it. In other words, it's, it's apostolic. A flight away. Some of us are called and will be called to uproot. I'm not saying that's the end all and be all of the gospel and I'm not making any more of those people who have to take a flight for the sake of the gospel to those who share it as stones throw away. It's the gospel. It's where God has called you to be. If that's where God has called you to be, that's the best place you can be. But some of us are called to uproot. Some of us will be called, just have not been yet. Or you have been, you just don't know it yet. That you have been called to take a flight and uproot and start a new life in a new culture, in a new place. And culture isn't just language. You can go to England and it'll be totally different to here while speaking English, even though English is different. So if you were to ask me for a title of today's speech or sermon, I'd call it Our Gospel. It's sounded out or it is proclaimed. The gospel is to go out. It's not to stay within and give me feel good and goosebumps. When that happens, it's God reminding you that actually the Holy Spirit has come to give you power to be witnesses amongst the nations. In Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the outer ends of the earth. So I'm just going to ask that we pray. And I'm going to pray for all of us about these things. That the gospel that we hear, that the truth of Jesus Christ, we can become like that port city of Thessalonica. Upon hearing the gospel, it invokes something in us. It stirs something in us. Like Jeremiah said, because he had a calling and you had to proclaim it, it's like fire shut up in my bones and I can't keep still about it. I can't be quiet about it. I have to run with what God has called me to be from the beginning of time, from before time, if there is such a thing.